Conan and Friends, a fantasy pulp fiction audiobook podcast. Voice characterizations and sound design by Audiodrama.ai. John Carter of Mars by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Episode 7, Book 1, A Princess of Mars. Chapter 20, In the Atmosphere Factory. For two days, I waited there for Kantos Khan, but as he did not come, I started off on foot in a northwesterly direction toward a point where he had told me lay the nearest waterway. My only food consisted of vegetable milk from the plants which gave so bounteously of this priceless fluid. Through two long weeks I wandered, stumbling through the nights guided only by the stars and hiding during the days behind some protruding rock or among the occasional hills I traversed. Several times I was attacked by wild beasts, strange, uncouth monstrosities that leaped upon me in the dark so that I had ever to grasp my longsword in my hand, that I might be ready for them. Usually, my strange, newly acquired telepathic power warned me in ample time, but once I was down with vicious fangs at my jugular, and a hairy face pressed close to mine before I knew that I was even threatened. What manner of thing was upon me I did not know, but that it was large and heavy and many-legged I could feel— my hands were at its throat before the fangs had a chance to bury themselves in my neck, and slowly I forced the hairy face from me and closed my fingers, vice-like, upon its windpipe. Without sound we lay there, the beast exerting every effort to reach me with those awful fangs, and I straining to maintain my grip and choke the life from it as I kept it from my throat. Slowly, my arms gave to the unequal struggle, and inch by inch the burning eyes and gleaming tusks of my antagonist crept toward me until, as the hairy face touched mine again, I realized that all was over, and then a living mass of destruction sprang from the surrounding darkness, full upon the creature that held me pinioned to the ground. The two rolled, growling upon the moss, tearing and rending one another in a frightful manner, but it was soon over, and my preserver stood with lowered head above the throat of the dead thing which would have killed me. The nearer moon, hurtling suddenly above the horizon and lighting up the Barsoomian scene, showed me that my preserver was Woola, but from whence he had come, or how found me, I was at a loss to know. That I was glad of his companionship, it is needless to say, but my pleasure at seeing him was tempered by anxiety as to the reason of his leaving Deja Thoris. Only her death, I felt sure, could account for his absence from her, so faithful I knew him to be to my commands. By the light of the now brilliant moons, I saw that he was but a shadow of his former self, and as he turned from my caress and commenced greedily to devour the dead carcass at my feet, I realized that the poor fellow was more than half-starved. I, myself, was in but little better plight, but I could not bring myself to eat the uncooked flesh, and I had no means of making a fire. When Woola had finished his meal, I again took up my weary and seemingly endless wandering in quest of the elusive waterway. At daybreak of the fifteenth day of my search, I was overjoyed to see the high trees that denoted the object of my search. 
About noon, I dragged myself wearily to the portals of a huge building which covered perhaps four square miles and towered two hundred feet in the air. It showed no aperture in the mighty walls other than the tiny door at which I sank exhausted, nor was there any sign of life about it. I could find no bell or other method of making my presence known to the inmates of the place, unless a small, round hole in the wall near the door was for that purpose. It was of about the bigness of a lead pencil, and thinking that it might be in the nature of a speaking tube, I put my mouth to it, and was about to call into it when a voice issued from it, asking me whom I might be, where from, and the nature of my errand. I explained that I had escaped from the warhoons and was dying of starvation and exhaustion. You wear the metal of a green warrior and are followed by a callet, yet you are of the figure of a red man. In color you are neither green nor red. In the name of the Ninth Ray, what manner of creature are you? I am a friend of the red men of Barzoom, and I am starving. In the name of humanity, open to us, I replied. Presently, the door commenced to recede before me until it had sunk into the wall fifty feet, then it stopped and slid easily to the left, exposing a short, narrow corridor of concrete, at the further end of which was another door, similar in every respect to the one I had just passed. No one was in sight, yet immediately we passed the first door. It slid gently into place behind us and receded rapidly to its original position in the front wall of the building. As the door had slipped aside, I had noted its great thickness, fully twenty feet, and as it reached its place once more after closing behind us, great cylinders of steel had dropped from the ceiling behind it and fitted their lower ends into apertures countersunk in the floor. A second and third door receded before me and slipped to one side as the first, before I reached a large inner chamber where I found food and drink set out upon a great stone table. A voice directed me to satisfy my hunger and to feed my callet, and while I was thus engaged, my invisible host put me through a severe and searching cross-examination. Your statements are most remarkable said the voice on concluding its questioning. But you are evidently speaking the truth, and it is equally evident that you are not of Barsoom. I can tell that by the conformation of your brain and the strange location of your internal organs and the shape and size of your heart. Can you see through me? I exclaim. Yes, I can see all but your thoughts, and were you a Barsoomian, I could read those. Then a door opened at the far side of the chamber, and a strange, dried-up little mummy of a man came toward me. He wore but a single article of clothing or adornment, a small collar of gold from which depended upon his chest a great ornament as large as a dinner plate, set solid with huge diamonds, except for the exact center which was occupied by a strange stone, an inch in diameter that scintillated nigh, different and distinct rays. The seven colors of our earthly prism and two beautiful rays, which, to me, were new and nameless. I cannot describe them any more than you could describe red to a blind man. I only know that they were beautiful in the extreme. The old man sat and talked with me for hours, and the strangest part of our intercourse was that I could read his every thought while he could not fathom an iota from my mind unless I spoke. I did not apprise him of my ability to sense his mental operations, and thus I learned a great deal which proved of immense value to me later, 
and which I would never have known had he suspected my strange power, for the Martians have such perfect control of their mental machinery that they are able to direct their thoughts with absolute precision. The building in which I found myself contained the machinery which produces that artificial atmosphere which sustains life on Mars. The secret of the entire process hinges on the use of the ninth ray, one of the beautiful scintillations which I had noted emanating from the great stone in my host's diadem. This ray is separated from the other rays of the sun by means of finely adjusted instruments placed upon the roof of the huge building, three-quarters of which is used for reservoirs in which the ninth ray is stored. This product is then treated electrically, or rather certain proportions of refined electric vibrations are incorporated with it, and the result is then pumped to the five principal air centers of the planet where, as it is released, contact with the ether of space transforms it into atmosphere. There is always sufficient reserve of the ninth ray stored in the great building to maintain the present Martian atmosphere for a thousand years, and the only fear, as my new friend told me, was that some accident might befall the pumping apparatus. He led me to an inner chamber where I beheld a battery of twenty radium pumps, any one of which was equal to the task of furnishing all Mars with the atmosphere compound. For eight hundred years, he told me, he had watched these pumps, which are used alternately a day each at a stretch, or a little over twenty-four and one-half Earth hours. He has one assistant who divides the watch with him. Half a Martian year, about three hundred and forty-four of our days, each of these men spend alone in this huge, isolated plant. Every red Martian is taught during earliest childhood the principles of the manufacture of atmosphere, but only two at one time ever hold the secret of ingress to the great building, which, built as it is with walls a hundred and fifty feet thick, is absolutely unassailable. Even the roof, being guarded from assault by aircraft by a glass covering five feet thick, the only fear they entertain of attack is from the green Martians or some demented red man, as all Barsoomians realize that the very existence of every form of life of Mars is dependent upon the uninterrupted working of this plant. One curious fact I discovered as I watched his thoughts was that the outer doors are manipulated by telepathic means. The locks are so finely adjusted that the doors are released by the action of a certain combination of thought waves. To experiment with my newfound toy, I thought to surprise him into revealing this combination, and so I asked him in a casual manner how he had managed to unlock the massive doors for me from the inner chambers of the building. As quick as a flash, there leaped to his mind nine Martian sounds, but as quickly faded as he answered that this was a secret he must not divulge. From then on, his manner toward me changed, as though he feared that he had been surprised into divulging his great secret, and I read suspicion and fear in his looks and thoughts, though his words were still fair. Before I retired for the night, he promised to give me a letter to a nearby agricultural officer who would help me on my way to Zodanga, which he said was the nearest Martian city. But be sure that you do not let them know you are bound for helium as they are at war with that country. My assistant and I are of no country. We belong to all Barsoom, and this talisman which we wear protects us in all lands, even among the green men, though we do not trust ourselves to their hands. If we can avoid it, he added. And so good night, my friend.
he continued. May you have a long and restful sleep. Yes, a long sleep. And though he smiled pleasantly, I saw in his thoughts the wish that he had never admitted me, and then a picture of him standing over me in the night, and the swift thrust of a long dagger and the half-formed words, I am sorry, but it is for the best good of Barzoom. As he closed the door of my chamber behind him, his thoughts were cut off from me, as was the sight of him, which seemed strange to me in my little knowledge of thought transference. What was I to do? How could I escape through these mighty walls? Easily could I kill him now that I was warned, but once he was dead I could no more escape, and with the stopping of the machinery of the great plant, I should die with all the other inhabitants of the planet. All even Deja Thoris, were she not already dead. For the others I did not give the snap of my finger, but the thought of Deja Thoris drove from my mind all desire to kill my mistaken host. Cautiously, I opened the door of my apartment and, followed by Wula, sought the inner of the great doors. A wild scheme had come to me. I would attempt to force the great locks by the nine thought waves I had read in my host's mind, creeping stealthily through corridor after corridor and down winding runways, which turned hither and thither, I finally reached the great hall in which I had broken my long fast that morning. Nowhere had I seen my host, nor did I know where he kept himself by night. I was on the point of stepping boldly out into the room when a slight noise behind me warned me back into the shadows of a recess in the corridor. Dragging Wola after me, I crouched low in the darkness. Presently, the old man passed close by me, and as he entered the dimly lighted chamber which I'd been about to pass through, I saw that he held a long, thin dagger in his hand and that he was sharpening it upon a stone. In his mind was the decision to inspect the radium pumps, which would take about thirty minutes, and then return to my bedchamber and finish me. As he passed through the great hall and disappeared down the runway which led to the pump room, I stole stealthily from my hiding place and crossed to the great door, the inner of the three which stood between me and liberty. Concentrating my mind upon the massive lock, I hurled the nine thought waves against it. In breathless expectancy, I waited, when finally the great door moved softly toward me and slid quietly to one side. One after the other, the remaining mighty portals opened at my command and Wula and I stepped forth into the darkness, free, but little better off than we had been before, other than that we had full stomachs. Hastening away from the shadows of the formidable pile I made for the first crossroad, intending to strike the central turnpike as quickly as possible. This I reached about morning, and entering the first enclosure I came to, I searched for some evidences of a habitation. There were low, rambling buildings of concrete barred with heavy, impassable doors, and no amount of hammering and hallooing brought any response. Weary and exhausted from sleeplessness, I threw myself upon the ground commanding Wula to stand guard. Sometime later I was awakened by his frightful growlings and opened my eyes to see three red Martians standing a short distance from us and covering me with their rifles. I am unarmed and no enemy, I hasten to explain. I have been a prisoner among the green men and am on the way to Zodanga. All I ask is food and rest for myself and my callet and the proper directions for reaching my destination. They lowered their rifles and advanced pleasantly toward me, 
placing their right hands upon my left shoulder after the manner of their custom of salute and asking me many questions about myself and my wanderings. They then took me to the house of one of them, which was only a short distance away. The buildings I had been hammering at in the early morning were occupied only by stock and farm produce, the house proper standing among a grove of enormous trees and, like all red Martian homes, had been raised at night some forty or fifty feet from the ground on a large round metal shaft which slid up or down within a sleeve sunk in the ground and was operated by a tiny radium engine in the entrance hall of the building. Instead of bothering with bolts and bars for their dwellings, the Red Martians simply run them up out of harm's way during the night. They also have private means for lowering or raising them from the ground without, if they wish to go away and leave them. These brothers, with their wives and children, occupied three similar houses on this farm. They did no work themselves, being government officers in charge. The labor was performed by convicts, prisoners of war, delinquent debtors, and confirmed bachelors who were too poor to pay the high celibate tax which all Red Martian governments impose. They were the personification of cordiality and hospitality, and I spent several days with them, resting and recuperating from my long and arduous experiences. When they had heard my story, I omitted all reference to Dejah Thoris and the old man of the atmosphere plant, they advised me to color my body to more nearly resemble their own race and then attempt to find employment in Zodanga, either in the army or the navy. The chances are small that your tale will be believed until after you have proven your trustworthiness and won friends among the higher nobles of the court. This you can most easily do through military service, as we are a warlike people on Barsoom, explained one of them, and save our richest favors for the fighting man. When I was ready to depart, they furnished me with a small domestic bullthoat, such as is used for saddle purposes by all Red Martians. The animal is about the size of a horse, and quite gentle, but in color and shape an exact replica of his huge and fierce cousin of the wilds. The brothers had supplied me with a reddish oil with which I anointed my entire body, and one of them cut my hair, which had grown quite long in the prevailing fashion of the time, square at the back and banged in front, so that I could have passed anywhere upon Barzoom as a full-fledged red Martian. My metal and ornaments were also renewed in the style of a Zodangan gentleman, attached to the House of Tor, which was the family name of my benefactors. They filled a little sack at my side with Zodangan money. The medium of exchange upon Mars is not dissimilar from our own, except that the coins are oval. Paper money is issued by individuals as they require it and redeemed twice yearly. If a man issues more than he can redeem, the government pays his creditors in full, and the debtor works out the amount upon the farms or in mines, which are all owned by the government. This suits everybody except the debtor, as it has been a difficult thing to obtain sufficient voluntary labor to work the great isolated farmlands of Mars, stretching as they do like narrow ribbons from pole to pole, through wild stretches peopled by wild animals and wilder men. When I mentioned my inability to repay them for their kindness to me, they assured me that I would have ample opportunity if I lived long upon Barsoom, and bidding me farewell, they watched me until I was out of sight upon the broad white turnpike. Chapter 20 An Air Scout for Zodanga
As I proceeded on my journey towards Zodenga, many strange and interesting sights arrested my attention, and at the several farmhouses where I stopped, I learned a number of new and instructive things concerning the methods and manners of Barzoom. The water which supplies the farms of Mars is collected in immense underground reservoirs at either pole from the melting ice caps and pumped through long conduits to the various populated centers. Along either side of these conduits, and extending their entire length, lie the cultivated districts. These are divided into tracts of about the same size, each tract being under the supervision of one or more government officers. Instead of flooding the surface of the fields and thus wasting immense quantities of water by evaporation, the precious liquid is carried underground through a vast network of small pipes directly to the roots of the vegetation. The crops upon Mars are always uniform, for there are no droughts, no rains, no high winds, and no insects or destroying birds. On this trip, I tasted the first meat I had eaten since leaving Earth. Large, juicy steaks and chops from the well-fed domestic animals of the farms. Also, I enjoyed luscious fruits and vegetables, but not a single article of food which was exactly similar to anything on Earth. Every plant and flower and vegetable and animal has been so refined by ages of careful, scientific cultivation and breeding that the like of them on Earth dwindled into pale, gray, characterless nothingness by comparison. At a second stop, I met some highly cultivated people of the noble class, and while in conversation we chanced to speak of helium, one of the older men had been there on a diplomatic mission several years before— and spoke with regret of the conditions which seemed destined ever to keep these two countries at war. Helium, he said, rightly boasts the most beautiful women of Barzum, and of all her treasures, the wondrous daughter of Mors Kajak, Deja Thoris, is the most exquisite flower. Why, he added, the people really worship the ground she walks upon, and since her loss on that ill-starred expedition, all helium has been draped in mourning. That our ruler should have attacked the disabled fleet as it was returning to helium was but another of his awful blunders, which I fear will sooner or later compel Zodanga to elevate a wiser man to his place. Even now, though our victorious armies are surrounding helium, the people of Zodanga are voicing their displeasure, for the war is not a popular one, since it is not based on right or justice. Our forces took advantage of the absence of the principal fleet of Helium on their search for the absence of the principal fleet of Helium on their search for the princess, and so we have been able easily to reduce the city to a sorry plight. It is said she will fall within the next few passages of the further moon. And what? Think you may have been the fate of the princess, Deja Thoris, I ask as casually as possible. She is dead, he answered. This much was learned from a green warrior recently captured by our forces in the south. She escaped from the hordes of Thark with a strange creature of another world, only to fall into the hands of the Warhounds. Their thoughts were found wandering upon the sea bottom and evidences of a bloody conflict were discovered nearby. While this information was in no way reassuring, neither was it at all conclusive proof of the death of Deja Thoris. And so I determined to make every effort possible to reach Helium as quickly as I could and carry to Tardos Moors such news of his granddaughter's possible whereabouts as lay in my power.
ten days after leaving the three Tor brothers, I arrived at Sodainga. From the moment that I had come in contact with the red inhabitants of Mars, I had noticed that Wula drew a great amount of unwelcome attention to me, since the huge brute belonged to a species which is never domesticated by the red men, were one to stroll down Broadway with a Numidian lion at his heels. The effect would be somewhat similar to that which I should have produced had I entered Zodanga with Wula. The very thought of parting with the faithful fellow caused me so great regret and genuine sorrow that I put it off until just before we arrived at the city's gates. But then finally, it became imperative that we separate. Had nothing further than my own safety or pleasure been at stake, no argument could have prevailed upon me to turn away the one creature upon Barsoom that had never failed in a demonstration of affection and loyalty. But as I would willingly have offered my life in the service of her in search of whom I was about to challenge the unknown dangers of this, to me, mysterious city, I could not permit even Wu's life to threaten the success of my venture, much less his momentary happiness, for I doubted not he soon would forget me. And so I bade the poor beast an affectionate farewell, promising him, however, that if I came through my adventure in safety, that in some way I should find the means to search him out. He seemed to understand me fully, and when I pointed back in the direction of Thark, he turned sorrowfully away, nor could I bear to watch him go, but resolutely set my face toward Zodanga, and with a touch of heart-sickness approached her frowning walls. The letter I bore from them gained me immediate entrance to the vast walled city. It was still very early in the morning, and the streets were practically deserted. The residences, raised high upon their metal columns, resembled huge rookeries, while the uprights themselves presented the appearance of steel tree trunks. The shops, as a rule, were not raised from the ground, nor were their doors bolted or barred, since thievery is practically unknown upon Barzoom. Assassination is the ever-present fear of all Barsoomians, and for this reason alone their homes are raised high above the ground at night, or in times of danger. The Tor brothers had given me explicit directions for reaching the point of the city, where I could find living accommodations and be near the offices of the government agents to whom they had given me letters. My way led to the central square or plaza, which is a characteristic of all Martian cities. The plaza of Zodanga covers a square mile, and is bounded by the palaces of the Jeddak, the Jeds, and other members of the royalty and nobility of Zodanga, as well as by the principal public buildings, cafes, and shops. As I was crossing the great square, lost in wonder and admiration of the magnificent architecture and the gorgeous scarlet vegetation which carpeted the broad lawns, I discovered a red Martian walking briskly toward me from one of the avenues. He paid not the slightest attention to me, but as he came abreast, I recognized him, and turning, I placed my hand upon his shoulder, calling out, Kaor, Kantos Khan. Like lightning, he wheeled, and before I could so much as lower my hand, the point of his longsword was at my breast. Who are you? he growled, and then, as a backward leap carried me fifty feet from his sword, he dropped the point to the ground and exclaimed, laughing, I do not need a better reply. There is but one man upon all Barzoom who can bounce about like a rubber ball. By the mother of the further moon, John Carter, how came you here? And have you become a Darcene that you can change your color at will? 
You gave me a bad half-minute, my friend, he continued, after I had briefly outlined my adventures since parting with him in the arena at Warhoon. Were my name and city known to the Zodangans, I would shortly be sitting on the banks of the Lost Sea of Chorus with my revered and departed ancestors. I am here in the interest of Tardos Moore's Jeddak of Helium to discover the whereabouts of Dejah Thoris, our princess. Sab Than, prince of Zodanga, has her hidden in the city and has fallen madly in love with her. His father, then Kosis, Jeddak of Zodanga, has made her voluntary marriage to his son the price of peace between our countries. But Tardos Morse will not accede to the demands and has sent word that he and his people would rather look upon the dead face of their princess than see her wed to any than her own choice, and that personally he would prefer being engulfed in the ashes of a lost and burning helium to joining the metal of his house with that of Thancosis. His reply was the deadliest affront he could have put upon Thancosis and the Zodangans, but his people love him the more for it, and his strength in helium is greater today than ever. I have been here three days, continued Kantos Khan, but I have not yet found where Dejah Thoris is imprisoned. Today I join the Zodangan navy as an air scout, and I hope in this way to win the confidence of Sab Thon, the prince, who is commander of this division of the navy, and thus learn the whereabouts of Dejah Thoris. I am glad that you are here, John Carter, for I know your loyalty to my princess and two of us working together should be able to accomplish much. The plaza was now commencing to fill with people going and coming upon the daily activities of their duties. The shops were opening and the cafes filling with early morning patrons. Kantos Khan led me to one of these gorgeous eating places where we were served entirely by mechanical apparatus. No hand touched the food from the time it entered the building in its raw state until it emerged hot and delicious upon the tables before the guests in response to the touching of tiny buttons to indicate their desires. After our meal, Kantos Khan took me with him to the headquarters of the Air Scout Squadron and, introducing me to his superior, asked that I be enrolled as a member of the Corps. In accordance with custom, an examination was necessary, but Kantos Khan had told me to have no fear on this score as he would attend to that part of the matter. He accomplished this by taking my order for examination to the examining officer and representing himself as John Carter. This ruse will be discovered later, he cheerfully explained when they check up my weights, measurements, and other personal identification data. But it will be several months before this is done, and our mission should be accomplished or have failed long before that time. The next few days were spent by Kantos Khan in teaching me the intricacies of flying and of repairing the dainty little contrivances which the Martians use for this purpose. The body of the one-man aircraft is about sixteen feet long, two feet wide and three inches thick, tapering to a point at each end. The driver sits on top of this plane upon a seat constructed over the small, noiseless radium engine which propels it. The medium of buoyancy is contained within the thin metal walls of the body and consists of the eighth Barsoomian ray, or ray of propulsion, as it may be termed in view of its properties. This ray, like the ninth ray, is unknown on Earth, but the Martians have discovered that it is an inherent property of all light, no matter from what source it emanates. They have learned that it is the solar eighth ray which propels the light of the sun to the various planets, and that it is the individual eighth ray of each planet which reflects, 
or propels the light thus obtained out into space once more. The solar eighth ray would be absorbed by the surface of Barsoom, but the Barsoomian eighth ray, which tends to propel light from Mars into space, is constantly streaming out from the planet, constituting a force of repulsion of gravity, which, when confined, is able to lift enormous weights from the surface of the ground. It is this ray which has enabled them to so perfect aviation that battleships, far outweighing anything known upon Earth, sail as gracefully and lightly through the thin air of Barsoom as a toy balloon in the heavy atmosphere of Earth. During the early years of the discovery of this ray, many strange accidents occurred before the Martians learned to measure and control the wonderful power they had found. In one instance, some nine hundred years before, the first great battleship to be built with eighth-ray reservoirs was stored with too great a quantity of the rays, and he had sailed up from helium with five hundred officers and men, never to return. Her power of repulsion for the planet was so great that it had carried her far into space, where she can be seen today by the aid of powerful telescopes hurtling through the heavens ten thousand miles from Mars, a tiny satellite that will thus encircle Barzoom to the end of time. The fourth day after my arrival at Zodanga, I made my first flight, and as a result of it, I won a promotion which included quarters in the palace of Vancosis. As I rose above the city, I circled several times, as I had seen Kantos Khan do, and then throwing my engine into top speed, I raced at terrific velocity toward the south, following one of the great waterways which enters Zodanga from that direction. I had traversed perhaps two hundred miles in a little less than an hour, when I descried, far below me, a party of three green warriors racing madly toward a small figure on foot which seemed to be trying to reach the confines of one of the walled fields. Dropping my machine rapidly toward them and circling to the rear of the warriors, I soon saw that the object of their pursuit was a red Martian wearing the metal of the scout squadron, to which I was attached. A short distance away lay his tiny flyer, surrounded by the tools with which he had evidently been occupied in repairing some damage, when surprised by the green warriors. They were now almost upon him, their flying mounts charging down on the relatively puny figure at terrific speed, while the warriors leaned low to the right with their great metal shod spears. Each seemed striving to be the first to impale the poor Zodangan, and in another moment his fate would have been sealed had it not been for my timely arrival. Driving my fleet aircraft at high speed directly behind the warriors, I soon overtook them, and without diminishing my speed, I rammed the prow of my little flyer between the shoulders of the nearest. The impact sufficient to have torn through inches of solid steel hurled the fellow's headless body into the air over the head of his throat, where it fell sprawling upon the moss. The mounts of the other two warriors turned squealing in terror and bolted in opposite directions. Reducing my speed, I circled and came to the ground at the feet of the astonished Zodangan. He was warm in his thanks for my timely aid and promised that my day's work would bring the reward it merited, for it was none other than a cousin of the Jeddak of Zodanga, whose life I had saved. We wasted no time in talk, as we knew that the warriors would surely return as soon as they had gained control of their mounts. Hastening to his damaged machine, 
We were bending every effort to finish the needed repairs and had almost completed them when we saw the two green monsters returning at top speed from opposite sides of us. When they had approached within a hundred yards, their thoughts again became unmanageable and absolutely refused to advance further toward the aircraft which had frightened them. The warriors finally dismounted and hobbling their animals advanced toward us on foot with drawn longswords. I advanced to meet the larger, telling the Zodangan to do the best he could with the other, finishing my man with almost no effort, as had now for much practice become habitual with me, I hastened to return to my new acquaintance, whom I found indeed in desperate straits. He was wounded and down with the huge foot of his antagonist upon his throat, and the great longsword raised to deal a final thrust. With a bound I cleared the fifty feet intervening between us, and with outstretched point drove my sword completely through the body of the green warrior. His sword fell, harmless, to the ground, and he sank limply upon the prostrate form of the Zodangan. A cursory examination of the latter revealed no mortal injuries, and after a brief rest, he asserted that he felt fit to attempt the return voyage. He would have to pilot his own craft, however, as these frail vessels are not intended to convey but a single person. Quickly completing the repairs, we rose together into the still, cloudless Martian sky, and at great speed and without further mishap returned to Zodanga. As we neared the city, we discovered a mighty concourse of civilians and troops assembled upon the plain before the city. The sky was black with naval vessels and private and public pleasure craft, flying long streamers of gay-colored silks and banners and flags of odd and picturesque design. My companion signaled that I slow down, and running his machine close beside mine suggested that we approach and watch the ceremony, which, he said, was for the purpose of conferring honors on individual officers and men for bravery and other distinguished service. He then unfurled a little ensign, which denoted that his craft bore a member of the royal family of Zodanga, and together made our way through the maze of low-lying air vessels until we hung directly over the jeddak of Zodanga and his staff. All were mounted upon the small domestic bullthoats of the Red Martians, and their trappings and ornamentation bore such a quantity of gorgeously colored feathers that I could not but be struck with the startling resemblance the concourse bore to a band of the Red Indians of my own earth. One of the staff called the attention of Dan Kosis to the presence of my companion above them, and the ruler motioned for him to descend. As they waited for the troops to move into position facing the Jeddak, the two talked earnestly together, the Jeddak and his staff occasionally glancing up at me. I could not hear their conversation, and presently it ceased and all dismounted, as the last body of troops had wheeled into position before their emperor. A member of the staff advanced toward the troops, and calling the name of a soldier commanded him to advance. The officer then recited the nature of the heroic act which had won the approval of the Jeddak, and the latter advanced and placed a metal ornament upon the left arm of the lucky man. Ten men had been so decorated when the aide called out, John Carter, Air Scout. Never in my life had I been so surprised, but the habit of military discipline is strong within me, and I dropped my little machine lightly to the ground and advanced on foot as I had seen the others do. As I halted before the officer, he addressed me in a voice audible to the entire assemblage of troops and spectators. In recognition, John Carter, he said, 
of your remarkable courage and skill in defending the person of the cousin, of the Jeddak, then Kosas, and single-handed, vanquishing three green warriors, it is the pleasure of our Jeddak to confer on you the mark of his esteem. And Kosas then advanced toward me and, placing an ornament upon me, said, my cousin has narrated the details of your wonderful achievement, which seems little short of miraculous. And if you can so well defend a cousin of the Jeddak, how much better could you defend the person of the Jeddak himself? You are therefore appointed a Padwar of the Guards and will be quartered in my palace hereafter. I thanked him, and at his direction joined the members of his staff. After the ceremony, I returned my machine to its quarters on the roof of the barracks of the Air Scout Squadron, and with an orderly from the palace to guide me, I reported to the officer in charge of the palace. Thank you for listening. Conan and Friends is an In Shambles production. 